Welcome to Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. To learn more about our ministry, visit us online at adlw.org. 500 years ago, a Catholic monk nailed a list of grievances on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, which launched a revolution in the history of Christianity. That same century, in a quaint English town, a small band of English scholars began to meet regularly to discuss the work of Martin Luther. They met in a tavern called the White Horse Inn, located on the campus of King's College in Cambridge, England. Amongst others, the names of those who regularly met were William Tyndale, Miles Coverdale, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Bilney, and Thomas Cramner. The man responsible for bringing those men to the White Horse Inn discussions was Thomas Bilney, who was himself awakened to the Reformed Gospel message after reading these words from Paul to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Bilney quickly came to see that it is Jesus Christ who saves and not the church. He said, My vigils, my fasts, my pilgrimages, my purchases of masses and indulgences were destroying instead of saving me. Martin Luther's accidental revolution rippled across the English Channel and the Reformation of the English Church was underway. That Reformation impacts our life as Anglicans and the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. And I'm so pleased today on this episode to have Dr. Chris Castaldo uh, with me. Chris was raised on Long Island, New York. For the last 17 years, he's served in the Chicagoland area at uh, College Church in Wheaton and then at Wheaton College, where he directed the Ministry of Gospel Renewal a ministry devoted to equipping evangelicals for constructive engagement with Roman Catholic friends and loved ones. Since 2014, he served as the lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville. Chris has authored and contributed to several books, including The Unfinished Reformation, What Divides, uh, Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years, Talking with Catholics About the Gospel, the Guide for Evangelicals' Journey of Faith, Evangelicalism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Anglicanism, and Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a Former Roman Catholic. Dr. Castaldo, it's just great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, Bishop Julian. Well, thank you. Take us on your journey a little bit, if you would, first of all. Uh, how did you end up in the place of writing about these things, and, and what's your, your own journey? Right. So I was born and raised in Long Island, New York, and uh, there I had a very constructive experience in the Catholic Church. Monsignor Tom was a fine, loving pastor taught us to love God and to obey uh, the tradition. Um, but for all of the benefits of that experience, I never quite understood why Jesus came and what it meant for me. 
That is to say, I didn't understand the gospel. And so as the years unfolded, I, I found myself investigating uh, New Age religion and philosophy, but it was uh, my dad's heart attack which brought our family to our knees. And it was then a friend came and articulated the good news uh, from Scripture, and that was the turning point. So I uh, then began to, oddly enough, work in the Catholic Church. My dad got better. Uh, at the time I was working for him, I was living at home. I needed a break from uh, mom and dad. So in my early tw 20s, I worked as a uh, professional fundraiser for a Catholic firm. And that's when I acquired an interest in this subject because I was working in the office of the bishop among priests and nuns, uh, delightful people. And I was a newly minted evangelical trying to understand where the lines of commonality and difference fell. And uh, that's what led me into the uh, eventually the writing of Holy Ground. Well, that's a fascinating story. Thank you uh, for sharing it with us uh, and for you know, taking us into your world a little bit. Well, you talk about working in the Roman Catholic Church as a, a new evangelical. Was I mean, that seems to me, was it a complex period of time? Well, it was in that I was um, convinced of this new gospel-centered faith for me, there was the struggle as a Roman Catholic uh, with this question of how can I find a gracious God? It was Luther's question. Uh, we had a, a deacon who led our youth group, Sal, and he would tell stories of Padre Pio and Ignatius Loyola and other men and women who were uh, faithful in heroic ways. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, there's no way I will ever rise to that level. So, you know, I had an understanding of God that uh, highlighted my inadequacy. And I, I sort of envisioned him with his arms folded and his toe tapping, waiting for me to get my act together. And it was, uh, wasn't until this Protestant friend explained that uh, that's precisely why Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that uh, the lights finally came on. And so when I was working in the Catholic Church, I was very much convinced of this foundation of faith. And yet I had these uh, friends who were Jesuit priests and, and very devout and very kind and very bright. And so it uh, motivated me to, to read and think and understand better how our traditions compare and contrast. So you're a person that, that was a Roman Catholic, uh, comes from a um, convinced Roman Catholic background. Uh, then uh, you, you describe yourself now, I believe, as an, an evangelical. Is, is that fair to say? Yes. And uh, so you're one that's made that journey to evangelical Christianity. There are others, and, and we might get to talk about this in a moment, who have made the journey in reverse, who have been evangelical Christians, who have uh, moved, converted, um, been received into the Church of Rome recently. In fact, one of the bishops of the Anglican Church uh, made that journey. We might pick that up in, in just a moment, uh, because there are people, if we can use this phrase, who are swimming the tide both ways. Yeah. 
and uh, I'd love to hear you uh, talk about that. Um, uh, my producer, uh, the Reverend Mark Steele, uh, and I reached out to some of the clergy in our diocese, in the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, and we said that we were going to be talking with you, and some of them have submitted us um, some things they would like uh, me to ask you. So some of these are my questions. Uh, some of them uh, come from uh, the clergy of our diocese. Um, firstly, I understand you just uh, completed a project at the Davenant Institute with uh, Brad Littlejohn called Why Protestants Convert. Um, what what do you think Protestants are drawn to when they convert to Rome? And and how do you, as, a, as an historian and pastor, encourage them to reconsider before they make that journey? Yeah, so this was a, a series of blog post that Brad and I did together, and it was motivated by this observation you have made concerning the movement toward Rome. And uh, so as Brad and I discussed the challenges and opportunities, we realized that it, conversion is not a purely intellectual decision. Uh, it, it really starts in one's soul. You know, there's no such thing as a view from nowhere. And so we're working out of our own experiences of faith. And as we do that, we came to recognize a number of motivating factors, some of which are psychological, others are theological, and then still others, you might say, are sociological. And so we went uh, about identifying each of them and reflecting on it in precisely the way you just described. Why would uh, an individual be driven toward Rome according to these factors, and how might an evangelical Protestant use the resources of Scripture to respond to those concerns? And so if we were to look at, say, the uh, theological, uh, one of them that we talked about was the need to be in touch with history. So I've, I've personally done some work on John Henry Newman, and his mm. conversion. And this was a, a big issue for him, of course. Uh, he looked at the, uh, the church over the centuries, and, and then he looked at his brother Francis, uh, his younger brother, who at the time was working beside John Nelson Darby, laying the groundwork for the Plymouth Brethren. And John Henry Newman became deeply concerned about what he saw as a, a subjective faith uh, a, a biblicism that was removed from the history of Christian thought. The way I describe it is in terms of the ditch theory. I've suggested that this is the, the common understanding of church history among most evangelicals, and it, and it simply goes like this. You have apostolic faith in those early decades in its most pristine form. Things develop well, uh, until Constantine comes on the scene in the early 4th century, at which time then apostolic faith descends into the ditch. And there it remains for so many centuries right through the medieval period until 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses, at which point uh, apostolic faith was restored at least most of the way uh, and there it remained until the founding of my particular church or denomination, at which point uh, there was the full return to apostolic Christianity. Now, of course, that's, that's a horrible reduction in caricature, but it seems to me that's the, uh, the premise on which uh, most uh, popular conceptions of church history 
are built. Yes. Um, you referenced Newman. Um, was it Newman's claim uh, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant? Um, that's sometimes cited by uh, some who have been uh, in the evangelical church who have converted to Rome. Is that convincing? Is it a convincing argument in favor of Roman Catholicism, or is it misleading? Well, Newman at the time was working on the uh, 4th century church. Uh, he, had, he had concluded his Arians of the 4th century. Uh, that particular statement comes out of his Development of Doctrine volume in the 1540s. And so he is immersed in the thought world of the early church, of its uh, sacramental theology. And uh, over and against that, he's, he's seeing the, the um, free church movement of his day, uh, which he regarded as uh, highly individualized and subjective and out of touch with any historical moorings. And he makes that statement um, as an exhortation uh, for Protestants to wake up and realize their historical roots. And uh, within just a few years, of course, he himself would cross the Tiber. Um, a lot of it comes down to the sort of history in which one immerses himself. And I would suggest that in addition to looking at the fourth century, we should go back further uh, to um, Calvary, we should go back to Sinai, we should go back to the plain of Shinar. That is to say, we need to look at redemptive history and see what emerges. And it seems to me when one uh, traces the contours of biblical theology, you are led to a gospel-centered understanding of Christianity that is quite different from uh, Newman's sacramental vision. Yes, that's that's helpful. It's helpful to me uh, as as I wrestle these things through and hear you speak. So, so am I right in in suggesting that you are saying yes, certainly, uh, the, the history of the church, Christian history, has something deep and significant and valuable to offer us already on this this podcast. We've we've talked about significant portions of of Christian history, and yet. Uh, 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 an embracing of biblical history uh, and a, a, a grasping of uh, the biblical narrative must undergird our engagement with uh, the history of the Christian church. Is, would, would that be fair? Yeah, re retrieval is vitally important. We need to be looking at Christian thought through the centuries, and of course that's central to the mission of uh, Davenant, um, there's a volume out by uh, Gavin Ortlund recently on retrieval. It's, it's quite helpful in this regard. And so, yes, let's open our eyes widely and recognize uh, how God has spoken through the church, not with supreme authority, but uh, in ways that are vitally important for us to understand. But all of that must, of course, be measured against uh, the supreme authority of Scripture, uh, the great narrative of, redemp of redemption uh, that unfolds through the canon. Okay, here's a question that's uh, come to us from uh, one of our clergy who writes, uh, one of the most often cited passages by Protestants leaving for Rome is James 2, where the apostle writes, we are not justified by faith alone. How do we engage with our friends and families when this argument is used in conversation? 
Right. This is an example, I think, of where the Old Testament background is so important. So read, reading James, we see him uh, going back to Abraham, and particularly chapter 22, uh, where the patriarch is uh, led to bring his son up Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And against that background, we understand James to be saying that uh, the, the manifestation of faith, the, the, the tangible works that we perform, um, have the, the effect of justification in the sense that they are validating uh, that which God has done in our souls. And so the Reformers were, were quite emphatic in, in distinguishing between the ground by which one is accepted by God or justified, the, the, the cause the reason for divine favor, favor um, as opposed to justification broadly conceived. Uh, so we, if we were to read Martin Bootser or Peter Martyr Vermeule or Oikolampedius, uh, their articulation of justification is a little different from Calvin at that point, in that they'll use justification language to talk about the way in which we experience righteousness. But they're, they're emphatic. Um, when it comes to our standing before God, our status as children of God, it is owing entirely to the benefits of Christ that are attributed to us, that are imputed to us, uh, and not the virtue that we manifest in the way that we live. Yes, that's helpful, isn't it? It's it's somewhat confusing, though, when we think alongside of some of the more recent statements out of the Church of Rome um, for example, the Lutheran Catholic statement on justification, uh, Benedict's uh, Benedict Sixteenth statement that Luther's doctrine is admissible so long as charity is retained. Um, that leads some people to ask, why should we remain separated from Rome if that is indeed the case? Well, it, you're quite right. Uh, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification uses the language of sola fide, faith alone, in its annex, and the annex is uh, authoritative in the same way as the rest of the document. Um, so what does the Roman Catholic Church mean in that context? Well, it, it is affirming that uh, one cannot obtain divine favor on the basis of what they do alone, apart from grace, uh, that, that we are always desperate for God's mercy and his grace, and that our favor does not emerge from one's own volition. Faith is central. But the Roman Catholic Church is at the same time insistent that uh, faith exists in a sacramental framework that involves the uh, meritorious uh, development of favor before God. And that, therein lies the difference with uh, historic Protestantism. We would uh, assert that faith is the means, is the, is the sole instrument by which we lay hold of God's favor and his forgiveness. And uh, there is nothing that we bring to the table in terms of merit uh, that could ever uh, warrant such favor. Yes, I'm, I'm reflecting in my mind as I hear you so articulately speak uh, those great words of the hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, right. uh, simply to your cross I cling. Except 
um, if I might add, uh, not that there's an exception to that, but uh, when I share that with um, Roman Catholics, when, 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 when I share that with those who have been evangelical Christians who have converted to Rome, they will say to me, but we have not been taught, and nor does the Church of Rome teach, uh, that meritorious works are required with regards to justification. Um, how do you respond? Well, that is entirely true with regard to initial justification. Um, but when we consider how an individual grows in his or her faith and realizes full and final acceptance, uh, then uh, the Council of Trent and the Catechism of the Catholic Church is quite clear that uh, in the Augustinian tradition, uh, one uh, does indeed merit divine favor, uh, that there is the uh, the cultivation of virtue in one's soul uh, that is lived out in a, in a life of virtue, of good works. And on the last day, God will analyze an individual soul to find that righteousness, that is to, to recognize uh, sanctifying grace uh, within the believer. And on that basis of inner righteousness, uh, that, that habit of holiness, uh, God will fully and finally pronounce an individual to be justified. Uh, that's a very different understanding of justica justification from the uh, historic Protestant view. Uh, I'm thrilled to be talking to Dr. Chris Castaldo, uh, who's written numerous works uh, on these topics. I encourage you to read them. We'll uh, put references to them in the show notes of this podcast. One of your books, uh, Chris, that I read, uh, The Unfinished Reformation, does speak in very um, generous terms about um, uh, what Protestants and Roman Catholics share in common. And I was deeply moved as I read that work uh, about how much we do in fact have in common uh, and um, the generous way you speak of the Church of Rome. Uh, however, as you have just said, um, uh, it, it is a matter of uh, faith in Christ alone. Um, but you do speak, uh, and I think still speak, in very positive ways uh, about um, uh, the biblical foundation of the Church of Rome and what, what we share in common with the Church of Rome. Is that correct? I do. I, I think very often we speak about the Roman Catholic Church and our differences of belief as though it were a zero-sum game. That is to say, to be faithful to the gospel means that I must be anti-Catholic. And it seems to me that, uh, firstly, uh, that falls short of our calling to emulate the character of Christ. When, when we read the New Testament, uh, we have this picture of Jesus coming full of grace and truth, and uh, he upholds both of those virtues in a perfectly balanced poise. It's not a zero-sum uh, situation. And so with Catholics, I want to be uh, forthright and have theological integrity and be honest. And at the same time, I want to extend the quality of love that we are called to extend. Um, and it seems to me that's the, the opportunity that we have whenever we engage conversation with our Catholic friends and loved ones. 
at the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Uh, we're here to equip and edify you in your walk with Christ. Uh, we're working to develop new resources like this podcast, and we trust that uh, you will find this ministry to be a blessing. Uh, to find more about the ongoing ministry of the diocese, including details of our upcoming 2020 missions conference and synod, visit us online at adlw.org. And always uh, share this podcast with your friends and subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. Dr. Castaldo, um, uh, I talked some time ago with a woman who was a regular attender in one of our Anglican churches, um, a convinced uh, Protestant uh, who shocked me by saying, I'm converting to Rome because at least there, it looks like someone is in charge. Uh, you know a little of our own story within the Anglican communion and the divide amongst Anglicanism and Anglicanism at this current juncture over matters of doctrine and biblical integrity and the supremacy of Christ. Many converts to Roman Catholicism from Protestantism uh, are drawn uh, by the notion that the Roman Catholic magisterium is an effective safeguard for truth, uh, and that Protestants lack such a safeguard. Um, in practice, does the magisterium actually guarantee doctrinal unity and orthodoxy? And you might tell uh, our listeners who aren't sure what the magisterium is, if you could just describe that for yeah, us. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think you have uh, rightly put your finger on uh, a motivating factor for many converts to Rome when Brad Littlejohn and I co-authored our uh, podcast uh, series, or his blog series. Um, Brad described this in terms of father hunger, that is a search for mm. an authority that speaks with a clear voice. And so if you've ever gone to Rome, uh, you've, you've probably approached St. Peter's Basilica by means of the via, the via Conciliazione, that's the main avenue. And, you know, you've got Bernini, Bernini's colonnade that reaches out to enfold you uh, as you draw closer. It's really a breathtaking picture uh, that illustrates the, the authority and the grandeur of Rome. And um, that's an image we can think of in terms of coming back to Mother Church, joining the family, uh, there's tangible dimensions to this tradition that reaches back for centuries, and there are a lot of people uh, who crave that over and against the, the, the myriad of denominations and churches that is uh, Protestantism today. But, but your question, is it really a picture of solidarity? I'm not sure it is. If, if you've had a chance uh, perhaps to see the recent film, uh, The Two Popes, which is on Netflix. I watched it recently. I think that's an illustration. I think we all realize that Pope Benedict was treated horribly um, badly there, you know, as the, as the villain. <laughs> so, um, but I think nevertheless, uh, there tends to be a conservative impulse and a more progressive one in Rome today and everything in between, you know. So on Twitter, uh, I follow James Martin just to sort of see what he has to say. And he's he's regularly advocating for uh, LGBT issues. And that would be contrasted by someone like George Weigel or Robbie George, who are, who are more conservative. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reality on the ground and that it's really not very different from 
evangelical Protestantism. That call for unity is um, significant amongst many who seek some level of reunification with Rome uh, or some level of uh, increased participation uh, between Protestants and the Church of Rome. And often the appeal comes from how best we can work through the call or the prayer of Jesus in John 17, a, a prayer for unity. Um, is, is, is that an appeal to some? Uh, is, is, is that why some people are moving towards Rome? We, we want to see the church united. And of course, the question also is, is, is the church to be simply an expression of the Roman church? Uh, that might be a second question. But uh, that, that, that John 17 prayer does seem to move some people in the direction of Rome. I think it does. And, and I think that, of course, John 17 should move all of us toward unity. We could add to that, you know, Paul's words in Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why does Paul use that adverb diligently? Well, because it's, it's quite hard to do. It needs uh, a lot of effort. And, uh, but, uh, but we ask the question, what unity are we preserving? And here we have a fundamental difference of understanding between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, from a Protestant point of view, it is the message of the gospel that is the basis of our unity. So, you know, right here in Naperville, um, on Main Street, you have an Anglican church and a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church. They're all parts of different um, ecclesial institutions, but they share a common evangelical message, and uh, on that basis, they are, in fact, unified. So uh, we have to be clear that Catholics and Protestants are using a different criteria at that point as we define unity, and, and we happen to believe on the basis of Scripture that uh, the message of redemption is the proper criteria for defining Christian unity. Yes, thank you. That's that's helpful. Um, from 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 your uh, journey, from your research, uh, uh, from uh, how you have now studied uh, Scripture and um, uh, embraced the Word of God uh, and allowed the Word of God to shape you and your study of the Church, uh, if someone came to you and said, um, "Chris, uh, I think I might need to convert to Rome," what would you say to them? Well, I would ask why, what um, makes you feel that way, and I would be sensitive to the fact that there are these forces other than uh, doctrinal belief that are very often at play. And, and so uh, what is this person reacting to? There's, there's almost always a push and a pull. And so take Newman uh, again, for example, you know, he was very much pushed by a concern for what he saw as subjective faith and uh, easy believe believism, cheap grace, if you will. Um, on the other hand, he, he was pulled by the objective authority of the sacraments and, and church offices. And so I would want to know uh, what is really going on there? Listen to that person's story. And um, I'm going to be careful to not engage apologetically straight away, but be a pastor, uh, and all of us can be pastoral by, by listening and being empathetic and helping that person. Here's the point. 
see the opportunity he or she has to um, to learn and grow in an unhurried way, to enjoy a process of discovery and not feel as though they must make a firm decision right now. And that's one thing I discovered when I read one of your books, uh, Dr. Castaldo, was uh, the commitment to relationship, uh, the commitment to uh, time, uh, the commitment to building trust uh, in, in order to share um, uh, faith and doctrine with someone who's either in the Church of Rome or is exploring Rome. Yes, that's right. Newman has a beautiful way of expressing this from his coat of arms, a core ad core loquitur, heart speaks to heart. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a, a wonderfully biblical notion. Um, our God, the triune God who exists in this eternal relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, draws us in to that uh, fellowship of love. And um, one way to understand our calling is as men and women who are extending that fellowship to others. And uh, that's what we do in each and every conversation. That's rather different than some of the language that we hear out of uh, some circles of Protestantism, even uh, some of the language we heard out of our, uh, or read out of our English reformers uh, with regards to the Church of Rome and the descriptions that have been used to describe the Church of Rome. Uh, does that does that damage our ability to witness to Christ and Christ alone? I think it does. So, you know, when you read the polemics of the 16th century, you realize uh, quickly there's, there's a serrated edge there. and um, But they were living and speaking in a very different time and place. Uh, religion and na- national destiny went hand in hand, and they didn't have uh, the sort of pluralism that we enjoy today that allows one to have the conversation. Um, and so... I think we we do ourselves a misservice by um, invoking the the same terms, uh, polemical terms of previous generations. We can uphold the same doctrinal commitments and do so with great earnestness, and uh, again at the same time speak the truth in love. And that that's the second point I was um, going to make earlier uh, that it is. Um, imperative for us as we pursue gospel mission uh, to uphold this ethic of speaking in love. In other words, it's missionally disastrous <laughs> when we just pull out the polemical sword and start swinging it. Um, we very quickly undermine our calling to be uh, men and women who embody the good news of Christ. And yet, as you know, uh, it can be heartbreaking for a parent or a loved one who has um, uh, uh, nurtured a child in uh, the Reformed evangelical community and watched them uh, uh, convert to Rome and uh, to be received into the Church of Rome. Uh, And in those times, um, uh, often things are said that are not helpful uh, and relationships are broken and damaged. Uh, and yet uh, you urge grace and love in those conversations rightly. Uh, and that's something that I learned uh, reading your material. I do want to ask you, if we've got time to do so, um, uh, uh, even though we are to um, to have these conversations with a generous love, uh, 
um, th there is a difference between um, uh, what Protestants and Catholics believe with regards to salvation. And, and you write um, uh, uh, considerable chapters of this in, in many of your works. But, but could, you, could you do your best to describe that difference to us? Yeah, I will, and, and I'll do it with a, a little story. When I first came to Christ, uh, I went to Christmas dinner, and um, I was anticipating questions from my uh, Italian Catholic family as to why I was now a Protestant, and um, no one said a word. I was, I was surprised. Until the very end of the evening, uh, I was literally putting on my uh, coat to leave when uh, Aunt Marie called out across the room uh, saying, Christopher, I understand you're no longer a Catholic. What happened? And, and at once, uh, all eyes were on me, and I had about 10 seconds in which to uh, give an answer for uh, the hope within. And um, it was one of those moments where the Lord gave me the words uh, that I needed, I believe, uh, because what I said was, Aunt Marie, I used to define my um, relationship with God, my salvation, uh, in terms of D.O., what I had to do in order to merit God's favor. Um, but now I understand that Christian salvation is spelled D-O-N-E, that is what Jesus has already done on our behalf uh, when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And that is the basis of my relationship with God. It seems to me when you boil it all down, uh, that's the fundamental difference. Yeah, that's what, what a fascinating story. And um, I'm so, so very grateful uh, for you sharing that with us because it is the truth of the gospel and it is the beautiful simplicity of uh, the gospel, that which Christ has done once for all uh, for the sins of the whole world. Thank you uh, for sharing that. One one final question, uh, if if I might ask, um, uh, uh, we've got many pastors uh, in the diocese who who are wrestling with um, members of their congregations that are, for whatever reason, uh, exploring the Church of Rome. Uh, we've got others who uh, have come out of the Church of Rome who um, uh, uh, have, have barriers uh, to any participation or engagement um, with the Church of Rome. How best would you suggest that we pray both for those who are um, uh, uh, exploring the doctrine of the Church of Rome and those who um, have been uh, so negatively affected uh, for one reason or another uh, and uh, are hesitant for any relationship uh, with Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think we we need to be attentive to the um, the arguments uh, for apostolic faith on both sides. So let's not stick our head in the sand. Let's not be afraid of arguments. Um, let's have the the courage to listen uh, attentively. Um, but let's not allow ourselves to uh, get hung up on the uh, flaws of a particular uh, denomination or tradition, uh, because it seems to me that's often what motivates uh, persons in one direction or another. 
uh, we look at the failures of the church, uh, and um, and we let that guide us as opposed to hearing what God has to say from his word. Instead, let's lift our eyes above the horizon to the person of Jesus, and let's um, resolve to have Christ at the center, knowing him, making him known. Uh, that, that's, that, that's a simple statement. Uh, it's far uh, more complex than just that, but it seems that we must have that guiding principle in place um, uh, if we are going to move in the, in the proper gospel-centered direction. Keeping our eyes firmly fixed on him, Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. My guest has been Dr. Chris Castaldo. Dr. Castaldo, thank you so much for sharing with us. It's It's been an incredible privilege to talk with you. Uh, your own writing has deeply impacted me. Uh, I'm grateful for your ministry, and it's been a joy having you on the podcast today. Great to be with you, Bishop Julian. Thank you. Author of The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years and Numerous Other Works, uh, I encourage you uh, to read these pieces from Dr. Chris Castaldo. I'm Bishop Julian Dobbs, and this has been Living Through the Word. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. 